Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We hope this resource is a blessing to you. Let's jump in. Well, it was a rainy day in the 1750s when an Englishman named Jonas Hanway decided to do something that no Englishman had done before. He walked down the streets of London on a rainy day with a portable roof over his head. We call it an umbrella. Now, at the time, in England, an umbrella was considered an accessory. An accessory that was only suitable for women. Men did not use umbrellas. Real men got wet. (laughs) So for 30 years, Jonas Jonas Hanway was the most ridiculed man in all of England. He was also the driest. Because as we all now know, umbrellas are useful on a rainy day. They protect us from the elements. They keep us from getting wet. May I suggest today that the will of God is an umbrella. God's will protects us from the elements. And if you step out from under that protection, out from under the umbrella, out from under the will of God, you're going to get wet. If you step out from under God's protection, it's quite possible that all hail may break loose. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. I'll be here all week. It's the end of March. Most of us are working on our taxes for April. So if you cheat on your taxes, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you compromise your integrity, you're stepping out. If you cheat on your spouse, if you have one too many, too many nights this week, you're out here just on your own and you're in a somewhat precarious situation. God's will is an umbrella given to us for our good, for our protection, for our flourishing. And God's desire from the very beginning was that that all people, all people would be gathered underneath it. God wants all people to be gathered under God's protection and God's blessing underneath God's will. Started all the way back with Abraham. God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then, as God rescued God's people from slavery in Egypt, God made that purpose known again that all people, all nations would know God's protective power. Then God established the covenant, and in it, God's purpose remained the same, that Israel would be formed into a people, into a nation so remarkably different than the other peoples and nations around them, so that they would bless themselves, and then so through that blessing, bless the people around them, that by their radical love for God and for one another, the whole world would be blessed. 
the covenant was established as an umbrella, as a layer of protection, not just for the people of Israel, but for everyone. The idea was that as Israel stayed dry under that umbrella, as they received God's blessing there, more and more people would be drawn and invited in. Problem is, they never really got there. The people of Israel couldn't keep themselves dry. They kept stepping out from under the protection of God's will. Israel found themselves over and over again where they were way, way, way out here. The writer of 2 Chronicles tells us about what happened as a result. 2 Chronicles 36, starting at verse 15. It says, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them over and over again through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. That's what Dave was telling us about last week. God's heart of compassion kept reaching out to the people, trying through the prophets to pull them back in. But they mocked God's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So the prophets, they warned about it. The people, they didn't listen. And it happened. The people stepped way out from under God's will, from under God's protection, and God, he let them stay there for a little while. In the year 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon enacted a scorched earth strategy. He sacked the city of Jerusalem, destroyed its temple, took Israelite prisoners of war back with him to Babylon, where they spent the next 70 years in exile. God allowed his people to suffer the consequences of their actions. But God never intended to leave them there. Which takes us today, now, to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bibles are separated into two books, but they were originally a unified work written by one single author. And we're going to do a very, very quick overview of the whole story that Ezra Nehemiah tells. And I will give credit where credit is due. I got a lot of good material today from a 
fantastic online resource. It's called The Bible Project. If you Google it, you can find everything you ever need to know or did never want to know about the Bible. But a lot of the content for this sermon came from there. So Ezra and Nehemiah, it's one book originally, two books now. Their story is set after the prophets, which we heard about last week, after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and after 70 years of exile. The book picks up 50 years after all of that. The exile has officially ended 50 years later. A new king comes into power. And it's the story of the comeback of some of the Israelites to Jerusalem and what happened as they sought to rebuild the city and their lives there. Specifically, the the book focuses on three key leaders who led the, the restoration and the rebuilding efforts. Those three characters are Zerubbabel, whose story is told in Ezra 1 through 6. Then it goes to Ezra himself. His story is in Ezra uh, 7 through 10. And then Nehemiah takes the stage in the beginning of his book, Nehemiah. Now, Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Sixty years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and begin to restore the community. And then Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And these three stories, told one after another after another, are designed to parallel one another. They all follow a similar pattern. Each story begins with the king of Persia being prompted by God to send a leader back to Jerusalem, and the king offers not only his permission, but some resources and support. Each leader in When they go back, they encounter opposition to their efforts, but they overcome that opposition. But even as they overcome the opposition, each of their stories ends in a kind of anticlimactic way. So we're going to go through all three of these stories and see that pattern laid out. The Ezra-Nehemiah story begins when Cyrus, the king of Persia, is moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding their temple. The author says that this fulfills a promise, a promise that was made all the way back by the prophet Jeremiah, that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 25, it says, Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it and everything written in this book that Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. So here, now that we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, we're starting to see, okay, that's a promise that Jeremiah made, that after 70 years the people would come back, but it says all the promises that were made. Those, if this one came true, then certainly those others should be fulfilled as well. That should should signal something to us. Because there were many, many promises that, that were made throughout the prophets. There was a promise made by Isaiah and Hosea that point to a future hope of a messianic king from the line of David. There was a promise made by Ezekiel and Zechariah that they prophesied a hope for a rebuilt temple where God would come once again to dwell with his people. There was a promise made by Isaiah and Zechariah for a hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring God's blessing just like God promised to Abraham. 
So it's with all these hopes in mind for this messianic king, for this rebuilt temple, for God's kingdom, for God's blessing, all these hopes that we read into the story of Zerubbabel. He is the first one to lead a wave of Israelites coming back to Jerusalem where they rebuild the altar for the sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are really key moments in the story. This has happened before. If you remember way back in, in, in Leviticus and 1 Kings, in that moment of dedication when they built the temple, they were dedicating it to the Lord. This fiery cloud of God's presence descended on the temple. It was so clear and beautiful and holy that, that God's dwelling was there with his people in that temple. But the second time around here in, in Ezra, that doesn't happen. There's no cloud, there's no fire. And while some people are really happy that, that finally their temple is rebuilt, there's others who are not so thrilled about it. The elders, those who had seen the way things were done in the past, they'd experienced God's first temple, they were utterly devastated. They cried out in grief, this is nothing like their glorious past and this does not look anything like what they hoped for their future. So here's where we first get our first story of opposition, and it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. The grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken to exile, those who remained in Israel that, that whole period of time, they come to offer help with the temple rebuild, and Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that all the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all the nations, all everyone under God's umbrella to participate in the worship of God. So this is kind of this anticlimactic moment, to say the least. But we keep moving because the next section of Ezra starts in chapter 7. We move ahead about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. Ezra is a, a leader among the people of Israel, the exiles in Babylon. He is a, a Torah scholar and a teacher. And he gets appointed now by the new king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. Ezra, Ezra his desire is to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. And hopes are high at first, but again, we come to this other weird anticlimactic point in the story. Ezra, as he returns, he learns that many of the exiled Israelites who had come back had married non-Israelite people, people who'd been living kind of the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Ezra appeals to the commands of the Torah found in Deuteronomy 23, that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the Canaanites. So he says that these people who'd been living around on those outskirts of Jerusalem, they're like the Canaanites, and they're going to corrupt the Israelites. So Ezra offers this prayer of repentance that is very heartfelt, but then he rallies the leaders and he enacts this divorce decree. He says that all these marriages must be annulled and the women and children sent away. And this decree, it's, it's only kind of partially carried out. And the story is very strange for a couple of reasons. First of all, God never commanded that Ezra do any of this. 
It was the leaders of Jerusalem that told Ezra to make this divorce decree. And, and second, the prophet Malachi, who was contemporary to Ezra, he actually says that, yes, though the exiles should care about purity, he also points out that God's opposed to divorce. So there are mixed results of this decree, and they once again fit into this pattern of kind of this strange anti-climax. Which leads us then to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is another Israelite who is living in Babylon, and he's actually serving in the Persian government. He's pretty high up. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays, and then he gets permission from King Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild the walls. And after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the rebuilding project, but he too faces opposition, this time from the people who had been living just outside the city limits, that those walls were going to get in their way. And the prophet Zechariah, he said that the new Jerusalem would be God's, he wanted to build those walls, but that was kind of going against what the prophets had said. The prophet Zechariah said that God's kingdom, the city of Jerusalem, would be a city without walls, that, that God's presence would surround it, that, that people from all nations would come and join God's people underneath that umbrella. But Nehemiah, you see how he's working with an opposite view? He wants to build walls, not bring more people in. And so he informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part. They have no part in Jerusalem, which of course provokes some opposition, some hostility. So while Nehemiah carries out his vision with, with great integrity and courage, they have to build their city with armed guards to protect them while they build. And this all leads to the conclusion of the story, which happens at the end of the book of Nehemiah, and it has two parts, one of them really great and one of them not so great. In Ezra, or sorry, in Nehemiah 8 through 12, Ezra and Nehemiah actually combine forces, and they work together to bring about spiritual renewal of the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to the people for seven days. They celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness in the exile and their wilderness journey. They offer confession for their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant and they follow the commands of the Torah. They finish this great celebration with, with the temple and they bless the walls of Jerusalem and we're thinking, this is it. Okay, this could be the turning point. But it's not. Because the book actually ends with this really huge and weird downer. Nehemiah tours around the city to see how everything's going, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. He finds Zerubbabel's work undone, <clears throat> as the temple is being neglected and it's being staffed by all these unqualified people. He discovers Ezra's work has been compromised as people are violating the Torah, working on the Sabbath. He finds even that his own work of the wall is being thwarted because people are setting up markets all along the walls and, and working and selling and doing business on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he actually kind of goes on a rampage. He starts beating people up and pulling their hair, yelling at them, obey the Torah. They teach us in seminary, that's not the way to do things, but... <laughs> And his final words, fine, the whole story ends just with Nehemiah offering this prayer, essentially telling God to, 
remember him, and, well, at least he tried. It's very strange. So if you read the the portions of Ezra and Nehemiah that were assigned this week, you might have been thinking, what in the world does this story have to do with the overall Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, and the kingdom of God. And yet, here we are at the end, and none of that seems to have happened. Israel's now back in the land, but their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. Ezra and Nehemiah do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what this book is pointing out is it's the same need that was highlighted in the prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who said, if God's people are ever going to get back under the umbrella to love and obey the will of God, what they need is not a whole bunch more rules, but a holistic transformation of their hearts. So the story ends. And with it, the Old Testament ends. And then everything goes quiet. After the people return and the final prophet utters his final prophetic word, there are no more words from God left. No burning bushes, no fiery clouds, no booming voices, no prophetic utterances, no thus saith the Lord's, none of it, not for another 400 years. Do you wonder, what was God thinking? What was God doing? Was God separating himself from the people? Was was God just giving up on Israel? Were, Were the days of their being his chosen special people over? Were they still under God's umbrella? We don't know for sure what God was thinking in those years, but I'll I'll tell you what I think I think God was doing. Do you remember the movie Jaws? When the ship captain finally sees Jaws and realizes how truly big a shark Jaws is, what does he say? We're gonna need a bigger boat. In those 400 years of silence after the end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the New, what I think God was up in heaven saying was, we're going to need a bigger umbrella. I think God was building a bigger umbrella. God was building a bigger umbrella. Because the people of Israel kept stepping out from under it over and over and over again, getting themselves into situations and circumstances that hurt them, that hurt each other, and that hurt God. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't stay under that umbrella. God was building a bigger umbrella. Because the people of Israel were so bad at allowing other people underneath it. No matter how many times God reminded them of his plan that he was blessing them so that they could bless everyone else, they kept, when push came to shove, they shoved anyone and everyone else 
out of God's covenant, out of God's community, out of God's blessing, out from underneath the umbrella. God was building a bigger umbrella and that umbrella had a name and his name is Jesus. There's this amazing story at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus, having risen from the dead, meets a couple of his disciples who have no idea what all has taken place and Jesus explains it to them. It says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the things about himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Genesis and going all the way to Malachi, Jesus explained how the whole Old Testament story is really, truly about him. How Jesus is the word of God, spoken over the formless void, calling all things into creation. How Jesus is the way that humanity and all creation are restored after the fall. How every promise that God has ever made finds its full and ultimate yes in Jesus. How by his death and resurrection, Jesus provides our exodus from slavery to sin and death. How in his perfect sinless life, Jesus has fulfilled the covenant on our behalf. How Jesus meets us and walks with us in our times of waiting. How the dividing walls of hostility between people come tumbling down through the conquest of the suffering servant Jesus. How Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and of his kingdom there will be no end. How the warning of consequence that the prophets foretold, Jesus took that punishment on himself. And how the promise of being able to come back to the promised land to restore God's kingdom here on earth is made possible only by Jesus' resurrection power. Jesus is that bigger umbrella. And because of Jesus, it's not just the people of Israel who get to stand under it. It's every single one of us. As the Apostle Paul puts it, He said, in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Under God's umbrella, there is room for you. There is room for me. There is room for every single one of us. So this next week, our readings turn the New Testament. Yay! (laughs) We get to learn all about Jesus. But remember, when we read this book, we are not just reading about Jesus, but because Jesus is risen from the dead, because he is alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we read about Jesus, we encounter Jesus. So as you read, Know that our risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to you, inviting you to come and find your place under God's umbrella, under God's will. Receive God's blessing. Receive God's protection. Receive God's grace. It is all waiting for you here. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on how to get connected, please visit our website at knoxprez.org. 
That is K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, or Spotify.